We continue in our series on the seven signs of Jesus in the Gospel of John, and this is sign number six. We're looking at a particularly miraculous healing this morning. A sign is is a miracle. It's something that points to something else. A sign is, is a way for divine life to break through into our existence and and give us a taste of what is to come. It points not only to the life to come, but to the giver of all life. Every sign that we've considered, and certainly every sign in Scripture, tells us something significant about who Jesus is and why, why He came. And in this case, in our passage, this sign teaches us that Jesus is the light of the world, and He came to make blind people see. So let me read our passage. We're in John 9. I am going to read the whole passage, okay? It's a little bit of a longer read, but this is an incredibly dramatic story. (laughs) There's many characters, and there's great dialogue, and so as you read it, it's easy to get caught up in this, this story. So let me read John 9, beginning in verse 1. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world." Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with with the saliva. Then he anointed the the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight, and he said to them, He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him, since he has opened your eyes? He said, He is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he he was born blind, but how he now sees we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. 
His parents said these things because they, were, they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, He is of age, ask him. So for the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God, we know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear, why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple. But we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a, blind, of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they, they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things, and they said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, We see, your guilt remains. This is God's word. Now, it's a story about a blind man whose sight is restored. And yet, he's not the only blind person in this story. Many people in this text are able to see physically, and yet they remain spiritually blind. Paradoxically, the man who was born blind is the only person who sees Jesus as he really is. In the beginning of the story, the blind man seems to be the only one in the dark. And yet, at the end of the story, he is the only one in the light. So as we look at this passage, ask yourself, as I am asking myself, am I in the dark or am I in the light? I'd like to divide our text into two parts. Let's first look at the world in the dark. We'll consider several categories of darkness and blindness that Jesus encounters. And then secondly, let's look at the light of the world. We'll see how Jesus can shine his light and open our eyes. Okay, well, I see four types of blindness described in our passage. All four begin in the dark, but only one is found in the light at the end. So we're going to start with him, this man born blind, and we'll consider his transformation later in the sermon, but we'll begin with his condition first. This is how Jesus finds him. Look at verses 1 through 3. 
as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So here we encounter the blindness of the afflicted beggar, the blindness of the afflicted beggar. Jesus notices him as he passes by. He notices this man who's blind from birth, which means, and it's hard for any person who is seeing to imagine this, but that means that this person has never seen a sunset, never seen a face, doesn't know what color is. This is a man who had lived all his life in utter darkness. Very vulnerable position. You have to rely on others to explain things to you, to describe things that you can't see. Also a man that made his living by begging, the only avenue left for him in that society. So Jesus sees him, he acknowledges him, and the disciples ask Jesus a theological question. Common question of the day, something that the rabbis discussed, and the consensus was that every affliction, every sickness, every illness is somehow connected to the person's sin or perhaps even their parents' sin. It may be a generational thing. So it's a natural question to ask, and notice how the disciples are not asking if sin is the cause of it. They're asking whose sin? Is it the parents or the man himself that was born blind? Jesus, however, as he often does, contradicts the common view and says that this man's blindness was not because of his or his parents' sin. It's not caused by that directly. This man is blind so that the works of God might be displayed in him. I find it incredibly interesting that the disciples are asking about the cause of the affliction, but Jesus wants to talk about the purpose of it. Isn't that interesting that they're saying, why did that happen? And Jesus says, let me tell you what this is for. Let me tell you how I am going to use this. Let me tell you what God is doing through it. So let me pause just for a few moments for application. It's not uncommon for someone struggling with a chronic illness or having a child with a disability to ask this question, is this the consequence of my sin? Most parents who have children with disabilities or special needs have had another believer come to them and tell them this is because of your sin. This is a common experience for children, for parents of children with special needs. It is certainly possible. It is certainly possible. As an honest Bible reader, I have to admit that there are certain things, afflictions, illnesses that God brings into our lives because of our sin. For example, King Uzziah was struck with leprosy, which he had to the end of his life because of his arrogance, because he wanted to, to come and burn incense in the temple and he wasn't a priest. So God struck him with leprosy. But we must also consider the possibility that our afflictions are given to us so that God's glory can be revealed in our life. While our instinct is to look at affliction as a curse, the natural human 
instinct is to see something bad happening in your life and saying, this is bad because I'm bad. But it may very well be a blessing. Now think about the blind man in, a story, in our story. He's the only person who believes in Jesus and receives not just his physical sight, but his spiritual sight also. He is the only person among all these different characters in the story, he's the only person who can see Jesus as he is. And part of the reason why he can do that is because he was afflicted with blindness, and Jesus came and restored that, restored his physical sight. Physical limitations often predispose the person to spiritual revelations and growth. Now, the classic example of this dynamic is the Apostle Paul's thorn in the flesh in 2 Corinthians 12. Paul says, there's something that is wrong with me. There's some affliction with me. And yet, he comes to believe through prayer, through God's answers to him, that this is given to him by God so that God can display his grace in his life. So God can give him humility in light of the revelations that he has received from him. And so it becomes not a messenger of Satan, which would be a curse, but a messenger from God. This affliction becomes a good thing in his life. So as you look at your life, consider the possibility that your limitations, your afflictions, your pain, your suffering may be the very arena built by God to showcase his power. As it is in the story, this is a clear example of God doing that with us. And I think he does it with many people. The question maybe shouldn't be, who has caused this? Whose sin has caused this affliction? But maybe, what is this affliction for? God, how are you going to exhibit your glory? How are you going to show your grace? How are you going to teach me through this? How are your works going to be revealed in this? Consider the possibility that your very difficult physical condition is given to you by God to be a special setting for a revelation of His grace, built and constructed and designed specifically for something God is going to do in your life. It is remarkable that physical affliction is something we fear, most of us, right? We pray for health. We pray against sickness. We pray against limitation. We, we fear that. We're anxious about that. And yet, it is frequently used by God to produce a vibrant faith in Christ. We have to understand this dynamic, that physical limitation, physical affliction, is often an avenue of God's work in your life to manifest His glory and to work His works in you and through you. So that's the first kind of blindness. The second kind of blindness is the blindness of the casual observer. The blindness of the casual observer. Verses 8 through 12 describe the response of the neighbors and those who had seen the man before as a beggar. Now, they seem to be confused at first whether this is the man that they know. Once they figure it out, then they're curious about the mechanics of this miracle. How did it happen? How did, you, how did you get healed? And then finally, they ask where this healer might be that did this amazing thing. So there's no question that they understand 
what happened and who did it. They are in the know, and yet they are in the dark. There's no indication that they found Jesus and believed in him. There's no indication that they even pursued looking for Jesus. They ask about Jesus, but they don't go looking for him. They're intrigued by the miracle, but they are not changed by it. There's no change that's happening in their hearts. They ask a few questions, but they don't seem to want to get to the bottom of it to find out who this person is, why he did it, what he's about, what he came to do, and what it means for me. So though they are in the know, they remain in the dark. I remember going to see my relatives in another city when I was a newly converted believer. I was very obnoxious back then. And you would say, you're still obnoxious. I was more obnoxious then than I am now. And this was in my days of, you know, when you, you become a Christian, many of us experience that, that newfound boldness and courage and excitement about sharing the gospel with people. And so, so I had a hat that said King of Kings or something like that, you know, bright colors, purple and gold, I think. So I wear this hat on the train to, to go see my, my relatives, and they meet me on the train, and they ask me about my hat. And I, and I said, well, I'm an evangelical believer. I met Christ through missionaries and, you know, having a spiritual conversation with them. And they say, yeah, we, we saw that whole movement happening in our town too, and somehow it missed us. So there was a sense in which they knew what it was, there was a general understanding of who Jesus is and what this faith looks like, and yet an ambivalence to it and a refusal to engage with it. So though we talked about my experience and they shared their very limited experience with Christ, there was no follow-up conversations. They never asked me, tell us more about this Jesus. Tell us how he changed your life. It was seen as sort of a, a trend, uh, you know, something that, that happened and they got left outside of it. They, they didn't really get on board with that for whatever reason. They could have, in their minds, they, they could have very well gotten on board, but they didn't. And so it was a sort of a casualness about this. They, they know, they were in the know, but they were in the dark. And many people in and around the church are no more than casual observers, while they know some things about God and at times they seem somewhat interested in learning more, they're not really following Jesus. They're not his disciples. They remain largely in the dark. There are flashes of light as they attend services or as they perhaps have a conversation with someone or as they hear a Christian song, but they're largely in the dark. I wonder if you are in this category. I know you're at church, or you're watching online. I know you're engaging in a, in a religious experience. So you ought to be in the know to some level. You ought to know what's going on here somewhat. You ought to know what we're talking about. But are you a follower of Jesus? Are you actually in the light? If you are a casual observer of Christianity. I want to disabuse you of the notion that you are a Christian. This may sound harsh for me to say that, but I think this is the most loving thing I can do, is to distinguish between the blindness and the darkness of the casual observer 
and the walking in the light of the disciple of Jesus. Because if you read the Gospels carefully, you will find that Jesus constantly and often contrasts the crowds and the disciples. Now, many people follow him. Palm Sunday, many people follow him and praise him. And yet there is a distinction between those who who saw the miracles and they were interested or heard his teachings and they were interested, and yet they never crossed over into being in his circle of relationships, being near him and listening to him, not just someone who, who speaks of curious and interesting things, but someone who speaks to them and who shapes their lives. Jesus does not call you to observe from a comfortable distance and to casually consider what part of Christianity might be useful to you. He calls us to trust Him, to follow Him. He calls us to commit to the narrow way. He calls us to walk in the way of the cross and to have life in Him. There's nothing casual about that. And you get no value from staying at a distance. You have to come in. You have to come into the light. You have to follow Him. You have to know Him. You have to trust Him. Otherwise, there's really no substantive difference between you and somebody who's completely outside of the church. Thirdly, there is the blindness of the fearful witness, the blindness of the fearful witness. This is verses 18 through 23. The Pharisees, the religious experts, judges of the day, interrogate the man's parents. Now, they've talked to the man already. They're not sure if he's the same person that he is said to be, and so they talk to the parents. And I think this is a rather tragic part of the story because the parents don't seem to be happy that their son has been healed. In fact, this seems to be an inconvenience to them. It seems to be a disturbance in their otherwise normal life. They confirmed that he is their son, and they confirmed that he indeed was born blind. But then they refuse to say anything else and tell the Pharisees to talk to him because he's an adult. He's grown. You can talk to him. Their surprising reaction and reluctance to celebrate, reluctance to rejoice, reluctance to find out who is it that healed their son is explained in verse 22. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. And so fearful they were of being rejected that they refused to rejoice in their son's healing. I think this is incredibly tragic. I wonder how many times they prayed for his healing. I wonder the grief that they experienced in having a child that didn't meet their expectations and having him suffer and having him go and beg and caring for him. And yet when he is healed, this fear 
of religious authorities, this fear of rejection, that fear of being put out, being excluded from the life of the community, makes them reluctant to even engage in this celebration. So they turned a blind eye to the miracle, as if it was something terrible that happened, when in fact it was a wonderful, wonderful healing. Now, during the course of the war in Ukraine, uh, the Ukrainian Ministry of Defense has been releasing conversations that Russian prisoners have with their parents in Russia. So they actually have the prisoners call their parents and tell them, we're okay, and explain what happened to them. And some of these conversations are recorded and made public. And it's amazing to hear the reluctance in the voices of the Russian parents at the news that their son is okay, their brother is okay, their husband is okay. It's, it's interesting and it's weird and it's strange to, to hear the hesitance to acknowledge what's happening on the phone. There's a real fear to say something wrong, to say something that might get them in trouble too. And the tragedy of it is, is that those relationships are broken, the comfort is not extended, the help isn't given for the fear of public rejection, other consequences, perhaps. And there are consequences of being a Christian. One of them is some degree of rejection by others. The blind man actually is excommunicated from the synagogue in verse 34. He is cast out. They put him out. He acknowledged Christ in some way enough for them to say, you do not belong in this religious community. And of course, in that day, to not be part of the religious community, to be an outsider, to be excluded, to be an outcast, had tremendous consequences for your well-being. You know, somebody said that to be cast out of a synagogue was like having your credit cards, your driver's license, your passport taken from you on the same day. This is significant. And for this couple, these parents, the fear of that happening overwhelmed them to the point that they wouldn't even acknowledge the miraculous healing of their son. They didn't want to get involved with Jesus. They didn't want to get, accept the risk of getting kicked out themselves. So if you walk in the light, you should expect that darkness will push back on you. Your very way of life, your words, your values are offensive to the world. They are. It's just the way it is. As nice as you can be, if you are consistent with what Jesus teaches, the world and particular people will be disappointed in you, will be angry at you, might get violent with you. That is part of the nature of being a Christian. Your light will naturally expose how dark the world is. And so your faith, if practiced consistently, not reluctantly, but consistently, will likely affect your job. It will likely affect your relationships. It will likely break some of your relationships. It will affect your reputations. Some people are going to think you're crazy. 
Some people are going to think you're a bigot. Some people are going to think you have antiquated view of the world. You'll be pushed to the margins of the culture. It will affect your opportunities. And in some parts of the world, it may cost your life. It may actually lead to you being imprisoned, sentenced to death, and executed. The question is, for every Christian, no matter the degree of that rejection that you experience, the question is, how important is Jesus to you? Is his acceptance important enough to risk the rejection of others? It really is that simple. We have to face that question. How important is he to me? Is he more important than my job? Is he more important than my family? Is he more important than my health? Is he more important than money? Is he more important than my life? He is if he is your life. The fourth kind of blindness is the blindness of the arrogant expert. The blindness of the arrogant expert. This one is probably the most dangerous kind of blindness for us, religious church people. After extensive conversations with the man and his parents, the Pharisees, the religious experts of the time, finally reach a ruling. There was some disagreement initially, but then they reach a ruling. Look at verse 24. They tell the man who had been healed by Jesus, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. Give glory to God. We know that this man, Jesus, is a sinner. This is a striking verse. They say glorify God by rejecting the Son of God. Glorify God by admitting that Jesus is no God at all. And all their religious knowledge and arrogance, the Pharisees have concluded that Jesus worked on the Sabbath, and thus he can only be a sinner, because no righteous person would break the Sabbath. And so how did he break the Sabbath? He did a wonderful thing. He gave life to somebody. He gave sight to somebody. What did he do on the Sabbath that made them conclude that he broke the Sabbath rules? Well, he made mud. He spit in the dust and he made mud, which was considered mixing, kneading, like you would knead dough for bread. That was work. That was work. According to the Pharisaical understanding of the Sabbath, that was work. It was clearly against one of the rules. Thus, since he broke the Sabbath, he's a sinner. He can't, he can't do this kind of miracle for God and God's power. There must be something else going on here. Now, this kind of darkness, this kind of interpretation is particularly disturbing because it is presented as enlightened wisdom. Now, Jesus frequently called such religious experts blind guides. He frequently referred to the Pharisees and those who taught others these rules, these elaborate ideas about religion, as blind guides that are not only misleading themselves, but they're misleading everybody else. And if you listen to them, if you accept their wisdom, which is earthly wisdom, it's not heavenly wisdom, if you accept their structures, their understanding, their ideas, you will be farther from God 
than if you hadn't listened to them. Now, we see it in the church today. This is not a first-century problem. There are some defenders of the authority and reliability of the Bible who can tell you about all the ancient manuscripts, all the variable readings of the Bible, and how accurate it is and how remarkable it is that we have this book, and yet who have no relationship with the incarnate Word of God. They can give you all sorts of arguments about the Bible, but they don't know who the Bible is about. They don't know Jesus. They don't follow him. There are some zealous apologists who can prove the existence of God and yet who have no personal experience of him. They can tell you all the right answers of why we should believe in God, but they themselves don't really believe in him. They believe the arguments, but they don't believe him. There are some very smart scholars who can prove that God made the universe and they can tell you exactly how he did it and correlate it with modern science. And yet, they have not experienced a new birth themselves. They can tell you about God's power to create in a moment, amazing things. And yet, they have not gone through that experience themselves. God has never recreated them and given them a new nature. There are some who know the intricacies of Reformed theology. They can tell you exactly how God saves his people and break it down. And yet, they themselves have not been transformed by the amazing grace of Jesus. They can tell you about the doctrines of grace, but they don't really know grace themselves. So consider where you are in these categories. There are more categories, I'm sure, but in this text, we're forced to consider whether we, me, I, fall into one of these categories. Am I a person who's physically afflicted, and yet God is using that to give me greater spiritual sight? Am I a casual observer, somebody that is near Christianity but not really in it, in the know but still in the dark? Am I a reluctant witness, fearful that if I say something, if I look into it more, if I, if I agree to something, if I say yes to Jesus, that that's going to bring all sorts of persecution into my life? And so I don't. I'd rather not know. I'd rather stay away. Or maybe, which is likely in this group, right? Maybe I'm so knowledgeable and so wise and so religious and I understand all the rules and I know all the chords and yet, I have not met Jesus, and I don't see the light. I'm still in the dark for all my religiosity, for all my obedience and all my moral aptitude. I'm still in the dark. If you're in one of these categories, I'm going to encourage you to consider the light of the world and to step into the brightness, into the brilliance of his presence this morning. So let's consider who he is. Look at verses 35 through 38. Now this is after all these conversations happened and the man has been put out of the synagogue and 
the parents sort of disowned him and the neighbors are doing their own thing and the Pharisees are angry at Jesus. This is after everything happened. In verse 35, Jesus goes and finds this man. Jesus heard that they had cast him out and having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. What a wonderful conclusion to the story of a man born blind. The Jews put him out of the synagogue, but Jesus found him. He found him. The man recognized Jesus' voice before he saw him as the Son of Man. He's just going based on his words, based on his, he recognizes him. This is the man who healed me. And I love that when the man asks Jesus who the Son of Man is, he's ready to believe, who is he? Jesus simply says, you're looking at him because he can see. Because Jesus had opened his eyes so that he can come to him and be seen by him and be seen by him exactly as he is, physically and spiritually. And the man saw Jesus and worshipped him. For a Jew to worship anyone is a big deal. The only reason he would worship Jesus is if he believed that Jesus is the light of the world, that he is the Messiah, that he is this God who's coming to save his people, that he is not just a miracle worker, not just a rabbi like everybody else. He is something different. He is something bigger, something greater, and he's right there with him ministering to him. Jesus said that the purpose of this man's affliction was that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, in the Bible, the works of God typically refer to his works of creation, his works of redemption. The Old Testament is full of the works of God. And I'm sure as this man was considering that, and if others were considering what Jesus said, they would think about the great works of God, creating the world, creating the universe, saving his people out of Egypt, redeeming them through the blood of the Lamb, giving them this great land, conquering the nations that are there before them. And so Jesus comes and says, what I'm doing right now are the works of God. I am doing something special here. I'm doing something divine here, which is why part of the reason why this man sees him as the Messiah. He sees him as God coming to his people. Now, there's this weird thing Jesus does, right? Let's not be dishonest. and It's weird, right? <laughs> Jesus spits in the dust. He, he mixes his saliva with dirt, and then he puts it in the man's eyes and tells him to go wash at the pool of Siloam. It's a weird thing. Why is he doing that? Well, you know, the commentaries, of course, all disagree. They all have all different versions. But, friends, I got it. So <laughs> if you want to know what happened, I will tell you. I'm in good company. Some early church fathers agree with me on this. I think what Jesus is doing here is the work of God is a creation. I think he is, in a sense, reenacting the creation of Adam. You have the dust of the ground. 
Because Genesis 2, 7 says, the Lord God formed the man out of dust from the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. So what Jesus is doing here, I think, me and Irenaeus, we think, we think that Jesus is actually recreating this man. Much like he did with Adam, he is now making this new life here. And of course, it's a work of new creation. The man is physically there, but something had gone wrong. He's lacking physical sight. That needs to be fixed. He's lacking spiritual sight. That needs to be fixed. And Jesus is coming as the creator God to fix it. So it's a work of new creation, a work of restoration, a work of redemption. Something that was harmed by sin is now going to be healed. Something that was lost is now going to be found. There's a reclaiming of creation. Just like Paul says in 2 Corinthians, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. Jesus is bringing the new with him into this man's life. You remember one of the prophecies about Jesus. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Jesus is coming as this light in this old creation to transform it, to renew it, to restore it, and bring new life to it. And so this man is not only becoming a physically healed person and experiencing physical restoration, he's also experiencing a spiritual restoration. He's become a new creature in Christ. And having experienced that life flow in him from the creator God, from the redeemer God, from the savior of his people, he worships him because he knows who he is. Because he can actually see him now as he is, as the light of the world. Now we know that this work of God, this work of new creation, restoration, comes through the destruction of Christ himself. Much like sin reverses the goodness of God's creation, Jesus comes to reverse sin by becoming sin and redeeming it from within. A large portion of the Gospel of John is concerned with the last week of Jesus on earth. This is what we're observing during Holy Week. We're actually following through what happened that week, day by day. And if you're following on our website, there's videos and scriptures to read for each day. So we can see the progressions, we can see what happens, and, and it all leads to this, this dramatic event on the cross. And three of the gospel writers make a point to say that when Jesus was dying on the cross, a great darkness covered the world. The light of the world The person who can give sight to people, who can restore creation, who can save his people, this person went dark on the cross, was immersed in the darkness of sin. Why? So that we who are in the dark can be brought into the light. He comes into the darkness. He rushes into the darkness to pull us out into his light. Now, Good Friday at our Tenebrae service, we will will see that visually. 
We will see light disappearing with every step that Jesus took to the cross until there is almost complete darkness. But we Christians know that this is, this is a prelude to what happens on Easter, to what happens on the Resurrection Sunday when light shines through. Even as the sun rises, the sun of righteousness rises with healings in its wings. Let me end this sermon the way our passage ends, which is a challenge, which is a forcing us to make a choice. It's forcing us to consider where we are and what we need to do to respond to the light of the world. Verses 39, 40, and 41. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things, and they said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Now this judgment that Jesus brings is actually a discerning kind of judgment. What he means is that he shines the light and he reveals the true state of people. Those who think that they can see, like the Pharisees, like everybody else in the story who are comfortable where they are, they're okay without Jesus, they're not rushing to Him, their supposed sight is exposed as blindness. Those who know they are blind are given sight miraculously. The blind man in our story knows he needs a miracle. And so in humility, he accepts this, frankly, crazy and ridiculous command from Jesus. Go wash in the pool of Siloam. Go wash the saliva and dust out of your eyes. But he does it. Why? It's faith, right? He simply knows that he is blind, and his sight needs to be restored. And the only way it's going to happen is miraculously if somebody like Jesus, somebody special comes to him and does it to him by grace. Erwin Lutzer puts it this way, Jesus used the blind man to illustrate his purpose for coming into the world. To put it simply, he came to give spiritual sight to those who admit that they are spiritually blind. And he came to confirm the blindness of those who self-righteously think they can see. The Pharisees' question in verse 40, are we also blind? reveals that they cannot even envision the possibility of their own spiritual blindness. And so many people say, do I need Jesus? Am I not okay? Why would I need somebody to come and change my life? And yet, if they acknowledge their blindness, their darkness, they could be given sight. As Pharisees, as many today claim that they see, they understand reality, while actually they are blind. And so their guilt remains. The guilt of a person who refuses to take the gift of spiritual sight remains on them. But the blind man and anybody who is a Christian who knows their need has his guilt removed 
and his sight restored by grace. Now, as you read this story, the man born blind expresses his ignorance three times in the story. Three times he says, I don't know, I don't know. And yet the Pharisees express their knowledge three times. We know, who are you to teach us? And Jesus contrasts that, and he shows us that the way to experience the light is to accept that you are in the dark. So this is where we're going to leave it. We're going to leave it right here. We're going to come to the table. But the question is, are you humble enough to acknowledge that you are in the dark and that you need his light? Do you trust him? Have you repented of your blindness? And have you walked into the light of Jesus?